So now Charles is going to come. He is kicking off the new year. And so please welcome Charles Park. Thank you, Sarah. Isn't she great at giving announcements? <laughs> it's good. Hey, it's the new year. Happy new year, everyone. Yeah, it's a new decade, 2020. Can you believe it? It's just going by. And uh, it's exciting because it's new year. Anybody do New Year's resolution? Oh, come on. Come on, I did. Anybody have New Year? Oh, I like New Year's resolutions. Isn't it good stuff? Like we resolve to do better, be better, exercise, you know healthier habits. It's good stuff, right? Why do you not like New Year's resolutions? They don't last long. It's from a long experience. (laughs) I mean, we've all done New Year's resolutions, right? We've all done them at some point, and then we realize... You know what? They don't last. Doesn't really help. And <laughs> we just kind of give up. But I want to keep doing it. Because at least you get it for a few weeks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's helpful. So I, I've done, I have a New Year's resolution this year. You want to know what it is? It is to be happy with myself, others, and God. That's my resolution. It's not your traditional resolution because it doesn't have that improving yourself part, right? I'm going to be better in some way, right? I'm going to like eat better or do better. It doesn't have that. So what does this mean? Does this mean I'm going to try to just be happy sitting on the couch, you know, not try to change anything, just be happy with myself, you know, right? Where's the uh, improving yourself part? Does this mean, does this mean I'm not going to try to improve? No, I am going to try to improve. But there's a difference between being happy with yourself and trying to improve versus I hate my flaws. I hate this part about me and I just, I have to fix myself. And if I don't fix myself, I am a failure. Anybody familiar with that? Even though this is in my Asian DNA, right? This is, this is what I grew up with. This is, you know, tiger mom, right? You're worthless unless you do better. And you have to be constantly trying to do better familiar with that, right? So that's what I'm used to, and I'm trying to be different from that, be better than that, actually, because there's a difference. And this difference is a difference between heaven and hell, literally and spiritually. There really is a big difference, whether you can be happy with yourself and try to improve Versus, if I can't improve, I'm a failure. It makes that big of a difference. Now, why would I say that so strongly? Because It's because I believe this is what Jesus taught in a very important passage. 
A theologian asks Jesus about how to be saved. It's an important question, right? How do you get saved? It says in Luke, on, on one occasion, an expert in the law. The law, whenever you see that in the Bible, that, that, that's the biblical laws. That, it refers to the Bible. It's not your, he's not a lawyer. He's a theologian, okay? So a theologian stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do you get saved? What is written in the law? See, he's not referring to the Constitution here. <laughs> he's referring to the Bible. What is written in the Bible? He re Jesus replied, how do you read it? The theologian answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. You will live. So the question being asked is, how do I get eternal life? This word in Greek is zoe. Zoe. You know, some, some people have that name, zoe. It means eternal life. It means life that is infinite in quantity and quality. Isn't that a lovely name? That's a lovely thing to name someone, I think. It's a wonderful thing. It's heavenly life. Uh, so this is a question about how to be saved. And the way to get eternal life is love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's an important part because if you don't love yourself, if you hate yourself, then, well, it all falls apart, right? You, you, you're going to hate your neighbor then because you hate yourself, right? You have to love yourself, to love each other, love God, right? Then you will live, live Zoe, the heavenly life, salvation. So this is a very important discussion. You know, this is called the greatest commandment. In another part of the Bible, Jesus adds that everything God wants us from us, wants from us, that you can read from the Bible, is distilled in this greatest commandment. You've heard of the greatest commandment? It's a grand title, don't you think? No other thing is given such a title. So this is not some insightful side story from the Bible that can help us. This is at the very center of Christian faith itself. It's about how to be saved. It's about everything God wants from us. The greatest commandment. Now, no one can disagree with the importance of love, right? Who doesn't like love? Anyone willing to admit, you know, I don't care about love. Nothing. Well, everyone thinks love is great. But two questions come up for me. From this, from this passage. First is, why is this command so important as to make salvation depend on it? Because, I mean, love is a good thing. But even non-Christians love. Right? Beatles sang, love is all you need. Right? Right? That's a lovely song. And are they Christians? Is Beatles known as like great Christians? I, I don't think so. At least I haven't. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they were like great 
believers, right? I mean, you don't have to have the right religion to love. Muslims love. Buddhists, secular people, they all love. And in fact, in the passage that follows right after, Jesus teaches that a good Samaritan is the model for the greatest commandment, who is saved. This is shocking. Because Samaritans believed in all kinds of wrong stuff. Because when Babylon took over Israel a few hundred years before this, they took all the Jews who lived in Israel to Babylon and other parts of the empire and then replaced them with all these pagans from all over the empire. They put them in Israel. That was their imperial policy in order to suppress rebellions. They just removed the natives and mixed them up with other people from other regions. So when the Jews who were who came Jews came back from the Babylonian exile back to Israel, they maintained their faith. But when they came back, they found all these people in Samaria, Samaritans. You know, you you can just imagine, right? You you let a few hundred years go with mixing up all kinds of people from all kinds of parts of the empire with all the customs and religions that they have. What do you think will result? The Samaritan customs and religion were a mixture, a complete hodgepodge of, of religions and beliefs and customs from all over the Babylonian Empire. So they were like some cult members, right? Believing in all kinds of weird stuff, complete paganism. So, so the Jews really looked down on them and, and said, you really believe in wrong stuff. And even Jesus says so in the Bible that they... They don't know what they're believing in. So they have wrong faith. Right? So how is it that some Samaritan, a pagan cult person, is the model to follow for salvation? Especially in light of the cherished Christian doctrine that you are saved by faith alone, not by works. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I love this verse. This is foundational Christianity 101. We are not saved by anything we do, not by works, because it's all about what Christ has done on the cross. Salvation is a gift out of what we believe. So if we don't believe the right things, that's a major problem. Right? Does that sound familiar to you? It's Christianity, it's bedrock Christian dogma. And yet, it conflicts with this passage because isn't loving self, others, and God something we do? In fact, Jesus says in the passage, do this and you will live Zoe, eternal life, salvation. So that's the second problem I have with this teaching. Is it something we do? As in, do this and you will be saved? Or is it faith? Something we believe that will save us? Do, do you see the questions that come up? How do we reconcile all this? This, this is a major problem. It's a major conflict. Well, I believe I can help us today. 
to get a perspective on how these seeming contradictions come together. Does that sound good? I'm excited. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time. So I'm eager to share my thoughts with you. See, I believe the answers lie in the passage that comes right after. Oftentimes, when we have questions, reading a, a Bible passage, it, it's often a good idea to look at what comes before and after and see the context and see what, what gives us a perspective. The theologian who studied the conversation continues. He says he wanted to justify himself. Right? He feels a little foolish for asking the question. So he wanted to feel better about himself, justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Very famous question. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with the famous parable of Good Samaritan. You've heard of Good Samaritan. There are even laws named after it. Good Samaritan law, right? So Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You know, he's dying. He just looks dead, right? Not looking good. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So he sees there's a man, so he's like, uh-oh, he's kind of, he looks dead. So he kind of like goes over there and then passes by, right? So to a Levite, now that means a worship leader in that, in that culture. So it's, it's the pastor and the worship leader. <laughs> when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, before we condemn these people for being heartless, right? I mean, you're a pastor and a worship leader, I mean, right? I mean, immediately we start to condemn these people, right? But before we do that, please consider that the, this, this half-dead man is stripped of everything that can identify him, right? I mean, the clothes they wore, the, the way that, you know, they dressed, it kind of identifies you. Now, this man is naked, right? The robbers took everything, and he looks dead. And there were rules, biblical and religious rules, about who you can touch, about how they should be treated, uh, in different categories. If they were Jew or Gentile, member of your tribe or not, free or slave, man or woman, diseased or healthy, dead or not, there were all these rules about how to treat them. And these were Talmudic, Rabbinic, Biblical rules and customs that these, these priests and Levites had to follow. You know? So if this man was indeed dead, he, they could not touch him. There, is a, there was a law about how much distance you can have for a priest, even. And that's why they crossed to the other side. It's not just to just because they were heartless. They needed to have a certain amount of distance from this man because of these rules, right? And, and the priest and the worship Levite, worship leader, they, they, they are the ones responsible for holding up these rules. 
Right? So they were following these rules that they themselves are teaching others to follow. Do you see that? That's a very commonly understood commentary insights about this passage. But a Samaritan, as I explained, basically a cult member, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Who acts like this, right? I mean, this is like, it's a crazy guy, right? I mean, he's going to, he's willing to go to any length as if this was like his own family member or someone precious to him, right? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The theologian replied, the one who had mercy on him. She just told him, go and do likewise. That's how you get eternal life. I think the main point of the passage is, anyone is your neighbor. Right? Like you can't draw lines. Anyone is your neighbor no matter who they are, stripped of all identity markers. And anyone can do the greatest command, no matter who they are, or what they believe, even. You know, like, like this beaten man, is stripped of all identity. Yet, Jesus is saying, he deserves respect and care, and worthy of being treated as precious, even if, he doesn't belong to your tribe, even if he seems a lot of trouble, <laughs> even if he is not a big success who can't help you, whether he's a good person or a bad person, whether he's a criminal. We don't know anything about this man. But any human being is worth being treated as if they are infinitely precious. It seems like that's the main point of this passage. Yes? Would you agree? And isn't that the message of the cross? Is that not the essential message of the cross that God, Jesus, is like this good Samaritan who's willing to go to any length, even give up his own life for our sake before we have done or believed in anything, as the Bible tells, teaches us, before we were even born, God would love us and thinks of us as so precious that He would be like this good Samaritan, do anything to heal us, to protect us, and love us, because we are so worthy in God's eyes, even if we are a complete failure. Even if we, are, we don't believe in the right things, it doesn't really matter because it's all about what Christ has done on the cross. It's not about anything we do or believe. We are just infinitely worthy and precious in God's eyes and He would treat us like this. And if we believe that, that's what makes us Christians. <laughs> right? Isn't that the whole Christian faith? 
Wouldn't you agree that we believe in the cross? That's the thing. That is the critical part in all this. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. And that is where salvation by faith alone and the greatest commandment connect. It's the unconditional love. Christian faith does not ask who is my neighbor, who is my fellow believer, who is worthy, who is in, who is out. This priest would have been compelled to save a fellow Jew, a fellow priest, a fellow believer. But because he believes some people are worthy, they are the elect, they are the chosen, they are the saved, and others are unbelieving, unworthy, not my neighbor, and not knowing which one this dead, per- dying person belongs in, his behavior changes. You know, according to who is part, who is my neighbor? You know, that question that theologian asks. The neighbor that I must help. The member of the tribe I must stand with. Who is my brother? Who is my sister? That's the mentality of the theologian who wants to justify himself. In contrast, the good Samaritan is a model of someone who doesn't care at all who you are. All people are precious to him. And that is the unique part of the greatest commandment. To love and accept self, others, and God, not because of the good qualities we have or the good things we believe, but no matter who we are, stripped of all identity markers to accept all human beings as precious in your heart, that is to have faith in the cross. That is the unique message of the cross. The cross doesn't differentiate. Then you will not harm others. You will not do evil. You will do good. Because you really believe everyone is precious. How can you do evil to them if you really believe that? You will go help the beaten man because you believe him to be precious. And if that's the conviction in your heart, then whether you call yourself Muslim, Buddhist, secular, whatever, doesn't really matter. You will have Zoe. You will have eternal life. You will be saved, as Jesus teaches. And this is how the salvation by faith alone and the greatest command become the same thing, actually. Do you see that? They are one and the same. If you really believe this message of the cross, then you will do the greatest command. Because you will have to. It's what you believe. To act like this good Samaritan is to believe in the central message of the cross that draws all people in. As Jesus said, when I'm lifted up in the cross, I will draw all humanity to myself. All humanity. Whoever, whatever you call yourself. No line. If that unconditional love is in your heart, then as Apostle John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. 
So he is connecting what you believe, what you know, and what you are born of with what you do in love. You see that? And the love, the word in original, original Greek here is agape. You may have heard that word, agape. It is unconditional love. There were different words for love in Greek. This one is unconditional love. It is divine love. As shown by the cross and the Good Samaritan, that shows no distinction. And that makes our faith and our position very broad and very narrow at the same time. You see that? You see, anyone who loves without distinction is our fellow believer. It doesn't matter what religion they have. They could even have cult-like beliefs like the Samaritan, right, in this passage. But anyone who can act like the Good Samaritan, who doesn't care about any identity markers, who doesn't ask who is my neighbor, who is my fellow believer, that is a person who is our brother and sister who believes in the message of the cross. That makes us very broad and flexible. We can work with anyone. We can learn from anyone. The whole world can be our brothers and sisters, our tribe, the same fellow traveler in the faith that we have. At the same time, it's a very, very narrow road. And only a few walk on it. Because most people draw lines about who is my neighbor and who is my fellow believer, who is in, who is out, who is my tribe, especially the religious people, right? It seems like it's all about who is in and who is out, don't you think? Like the theologian in this passage. But the secular people too. There's all this tribal mentality. Who's up, who's down, who's precious, who's worthless. The Bible says, and I agree, that the world cannot believe or act in this way. The world is compelled to draw lines. We all have standards in our heads that place ourselves and others in categories. And we divide them as, and ourselves as this is the good part, this is the bad part. This is a, you know, worthy part, worthy person. This is an unworthy person, depending on success, wealth, knowledge, beliefs, artistry, creativity, how you look, what have you. Instagram, Facebook, social media. We are always measuring and categorizing and dividing and judging and comparing and rejecting. Don't we? That's just in our blood. It's always something that divides and categorizes. And the Bible says this is the original problem that brought hell to earth. Knowledge of good and bad. Knowledge of good and evil. Here the word evil in Hebrew is ra. It's better translated as bad. So the knowledge of good and bad is the original sin in Genesis 3 that causes humanity to judge and divide itself, each other, and God. And I won't go into this detail because... And I covered it repeatedly in the past and I'm running out of time. But just consider the effects of knowledge of good and bad on the priest and the Levite. Right? 
It's the knowledge of good and evil that causes the priest and the Levite to pass by on the other side. It's the laws that they have believed in. It's the customs, the Talmudic beliefs and the traditions and, and the rules that they live by. It's the tri- tribal mentality asking, who is my neighbor? Who is worth my help? And who is not? Who is worthless? Not worth the bother because they don't belong to my tribe and, and my faith. They cross to the other side to distance themselves from the beaten man. Just like Adam and Eve who distance from each other by blaming each other. Who distance from God by hiding. Distance themselves from themselves by covering up. So the greatest command to love self, each other, and God, it's the exact reverse of the fall described in Genesis 3 when they get alienated from self, each other, and from God. And the cross provides us with the power to reverse that fall. It is the tree of life. The cross reconciles us to God unconditionally. It is what Christ has done. Unconditionally, it reconciles us to God. And it commands us, no, compels us to forgive each other unconditionally because of Christ. You remember when Jesus said you must forgive infinitely? Which means you have to unconditionally forgive because if you really believe this, you can't live otherwise. You have to forgive unconditionally. Doesn't mean you continue to expose yourself to abuse, but you let it go in your heart. And reconciles us to ourselves by removing all guilt and shame unconditionally. Now that is good news. And it makes sense why that would bring heaven into our life because it reverses the fall that brought hell to earth. And that's why my New Year's resolution is be happy with yourself, with others, and with God and reality. Now being happy is not the same as love. I acknowledge that. Love is a bigger concept. But being happy goes with accepting and treating as precious. And the important part is here, and the hard part, and this is the critical part, has to be unconditional. You have to be unconditionally happy with yourself. Ugh. (laughs) Now that's hard, right? The good parts and the ugly parts. You have to be unconditionally accept yourself and treat yourself as precious. No more beating up on yourself and cursing yourself out. Right? Because if I really believe in the message of the cross, how can I not? Right? That's how God treats me. It has to be no matter how well or poorly things are going with myself or reality with others, I have to treat as precious all the things around me. And that will bring heaven into your life and that will get you saved. So here are some practical suggestions. First I have for you is believe that you are the beloved unconditionally. Let me read you this verse from Apostle John again. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. 
And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Meaning you have the right belief, you have the right faith, you will be saved. And the word beloved here is agapetoi. Meaning the one who is loved unconditionally. He is addressing all Christians as the beloved. He is talking to all Christians. This involves all of us. He's calling all of you the beloved. And here's the neat part. If you do see yourself as the beloved unconditionally, that makes you a Christian. (laughs) In heart, in essence. Because now that is the message of the cross. So the word beloved can stand in for the word Christian. Do you see what I'm getting at? To believe we are beloved unconditionally is to be Christian. It connects. Now, as I said, it's hard to believe we are beloved unconditionally. We love our good parts and hate our ugly parts. Very hard. My daughter... She's a sophomore in college, and she was home for the holidays. And she tells me that the biggest thing among her friends in her college, who are, she said they're all secular, she said the biggest thing is self-love. It's the biggest thing that they're talking about. Self-love. You know, that's, that's what they're trying to get better at. That's their New Year's resolution or that's the thing that the colleges are talking about to help you be happy, to have, you know, to make it through college without, you know, terrible things. You know, it's it's the thing that they talk about, self-love. And I'm glad for that actually because self-love is part of the greatest commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's great. Rejection of the self is the first thing that happens in the fall. So I'm glad that people, even secular people, really grab onto this. But where does self-love come from? It feels very fluffy to me, right? How do you self-love? And it's easy to love the good parts. Where does self-love come from? Where is it anchored? What about the ugly parts? How, what, where can we anchor the self-love? What makes us precious? You know, I believe worth is conferred. You know, like the diamonds, right? I've always wanted diamonds. They're just rocks. <laughs> they're, they're just rocks. Why, why is it worth like tens of thousands of dollars? Maybe millions, some of these things. And I'm like, they're just rocks from the... Well, it's because people confer worth upon it, right? People believe it's worth a lot and precious, so it becomes precious. I believe worth is conferred. The one who sees us as beloved is what makes us worthy. Whatever you call it, that is your God. If that's your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, your job, your Instagram follow account, Whatever that is, that becomes your God. Because that is what determines your worth. You wouldn't be able to live without it. But, it becomes an idol. 
that will break your heart because all such love is conditional. And as soon as it becomes conditional, it becomes part of the knowledge of good and evil. If I perform well at my job, that's what makes me worthy and good. That's knowledge of good and evil. And if you base your self-love, your worth upon such things, it will break your heart. Because when your worth becomes conditional, it'll just crumble. It is of hell. It'll only work to distance yourself from yourself and others and from reality. Isn't that our experience? God's love is unconditional. The cross is unconditional. God calls us the beloved unconditionally. That can become an anchor in your life you can build on that is sure. It is the solid rock. This is why faith is so important. I don't think it's possible to really be happy in your life in the long run without such faith that you are beloved unconditionally. I don't care whatever you call that, wherever you get that from. But that is the heart of the cross. That is the faith that will save you. Now, this doesn't mean we don't see our flaws. Stop trying to improve. But you can improve from the place of acceptance. We need to work on becoming like the good Samaritan, taking in this message. This is our chief discipleship task as a Christian. This is what makes you true Christian. And this will help us to fight tribalism. Tribalism is taking over the world today. From racial angle, from national angle, from political angle, from religious angle, tribalism is a fruit of knowledge of good and evil. It is of hell. The problem is Christianity as traditionally understood becomes all tribal. Do you believe in the right doctrines? Do you go to the right church? Do you have the right sacraments over you? There are 13,000 denominations within the Protestant tradition alone. And so many of them believe they believe the right thing and others are going to hell. Right? Tribal. Right? Now, I am saying something that says this is the right faith. (laughs) So in a way, you could accuse me of being tribal. Perhaps. But it is a very broad and very narrow at the same time. Do you see it? Do you see how that is? So broad and so narrow at the same time. And that accords with what Jesus taught in the New Testament. He speaks in both ways. Very broad and very narrow. It is not true that those who believe in the same doctrines And only those are my brothers and sisters in faith. That's the lawyer's mentality who asks, who is my neighbor? That's the priest and the Levite who pass by the beaten man. Even a cult member like the Good Samaritan can become our fellow believer if they are acting and living 
like the beloved who unconditionally. That is what makes us Christian. Those are our tribe in a way. (laughs) But it is a very open road. Not many are going to travel with us in this. Most people in the world prefer to draw lines. The world cannot believe or act like this. Because the world is built on the knowledge of good and evil. We could be misunderstood. We could be unpopular. But that is our faith. Practice your faith wherever you go. Wherever you see line drawing, like asking, who is my tribe? Fight it. Even within yourself, how you see yourself, when you beat up on yourself, when you feel good about yourself, ask yourself, does this accord with being the beloved unconditionally? That will steer you right. Right? Amen? Amen. Do this and you will live. You will have eternal life, heavenly life. Zoe. Amen. Let's pray for God, we start a new year, new decade. And I pray now that you will help us transform our mind that we will no longer live like the world that draws all these lines all over the place in every way. Help us, even today. Help us to know and believe and take into our hearts that we are the beloved unconditionally. Unconditionally. No matter who we are, what we believe, what we do, we are the beloved unconditionally for whom Jesus went to death for, like the Good Samaritan would go to any length to treat us as precious and take us in. Help us to become the beloved this year, this decade, for the rest of our lives. Help us to live as the beloved and spread unconditional love wherever we go. And we will truly be the good news and the light that shines in this world, salt of the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen.